Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On our program tonight, the anti-pipeline protests escalate as tensions flare on Tyendinaga territory with fires set next to the rails, debris on the tracks, and rocks thrown at locomotives. And the Prime Minister faces continued questions about his handling of the confrontations. MPs will be here to debate that. On a day when federal ministers and Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs in BC may be moving closer to a face-to-face meeting. And on a day when Canada's farmers call for decisive action to end the blockades, they say are pushing farm families to a tipping point. And as the coronavirus outbreak spreads around the world, with a new case in Canada, how ready is this country to deal with a possible pandemic? And what should you do to prepare? And we'll begin again tonight with the political story that has growing consequences for the economy, national unity and reconciliation with Indigenous peoples. And the tension is clearly escalating. It's been another day of transportation disruptions in this country, including rail blockades. The most significant one is on Mohawk territory at Tyendinaga near Belleville, Ontario, where protesters today started a fire beside the tracks as trains began to move through that area. Those rails had been cleared of a protest earlier this week when police moved in, backed by a court injunction. But now the protesters uh, set up next to the railroad, uh, railroad rather, and clearly are doing what they can to try to continue disrupting rail service. Today that included placing branches on the tracks as a train came through and throwing rocks at the locomotive as police looked on from the other side of the tracks. Now we want to show you some of what happened at that protest today, some tense moments between the protesters and the Ontario Provincial Police, all of it live streamed by Real People, Real People's Media, which bills itself as promoting Indigenous political agendas and has been given access to the protest camp. Here are several minutes of what unfolded today.
Black Warriors here were adamant that no train should pass. Train's starting to slow down here. train on the tracks it can't be As you folks just saw, that was uh, 
Despite there being warriors on the tracks, the train just rolled right through. Did not stop, did not attempt to stop. I fear this may be seen as a major escalation. It's gonna be a major escalation what we just saw here. That train did not slow down. So, clearly you see that video, the tensions are running high and these protests present a real threat to the safe passage of those trains through that Mohawk territory near Belleville, Ontario. Here's how Canada's Minister of Public Safety and the Minister of Transport responded to those increased tensions today. Oh, this was an extremely reckless act. Uh, I saw the video uh, this morning and uh, something that not only put in, in danger the life of the people who were actually lighting this fire under a moving train, but also could have been very dangerous for many other people because uh, what if this train was carrying dangerous materials that could have, uh, could have ignited, uh, depending on the size of the fire. This is a totally reckless act, and uh, uh, I hope that uh, we're not going to see this kind of thing. Is it responsible? I, I would, again, continue to urge people to, to take the barricades down, to obey the law, and, and encourage the dialogue that we know is so important to continue. But how can you get rail traffic going through safely when people are throwing burning tires on the tracks and pallets on the tracks? Well, again, and that's the responsibility of the, the police of jurisdiction to in, uphold the law. We want to continue to encourage people to obey the law you know, that, and, and remind them that there's an important discussion and dialogue that, that needs to take place and is taking place. And in the interim, we would encourage everyone to obey the law and be safe. And meanwhile, a long-awaited face-to-face meeting between federal ministers and the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs at the center of this dispute could be happening soon. Could a spokesperson for the hereditary chiefs, whose opposition to the pipelines triggered the nationwide blockades and protests, says a face-to-face -face meeting in British Columbia with federal ministers could happen as soon as Thursday. He says talks to see the RCMP presence completely removed from Wet'suwet'en territory, including those occasional RCMP patrols. Those talks have been going well, and that could open the door for a meeting with federal ministers. As of now, the conversations are, uh, are they were having their meetings themselves Monday and Tuesday. Uh, we hope to hear more back from them, um, uh, hopefully this afternoon, as to you know, to whether there will be an invitation uh, for us to join them. You mean this morning on your way in, Minister, you said we're almost there. So what, well, we, what progress exactly are you There doing? is, again, we can't negotiate this in public. Uh, I think that what we actually need to, to do is to make sure that the chiefs are comfortable um, in terms of the next steps and we'll let you know. Well, let's discuss the latest developments on the anti-pipeline protests with three members of Parliament who joined me tonight. Pam Demoff is the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Indigenous Services. Jamie Schmale is the critic for Crown Indigenous Relations for the official opposition Conservatives. And Rachel Blaney is the whip for the NDP. Good to see you all tonight. Thanks Good for being here. You. Thanks Thank for having you. us. Pam Demoff, we saw the actions of uh, protesters escalate on the rail lines near Belleville today beyond uh, saying it's unsafe and unacceptable, which is what we heard from the government today. What else is your government prepared to do to try and make sure those trains can move safely? Well, it, it is unacceptable and it is unsafe and we've, we've indicated that law enforcement, police services across the country need to be enforcing injunctions and, and that remains the same and, and you know, it, these actions should not be taking place. It's, it's, 
it's really troubling when you see that type of thing happening near a rail line. And what we saw, at least for part of the day today there, was we saw uh, protesters uh, you know, burning, uh, setting up a, a fire just off the side of the tracks, uh, using old uh, wood skids and so on. And we saw police officers on the other side of the track, and at one point there was some conversation, but um, are you suggesting the police need to be more aggressive in shutting these things down, or uh, they seem to be, again, trying to find a way to uh, talk this thing through rather than uh, taking forceful action? I don't want to see anyone get hurt, Peter, um, but I also have trust in law enforcement and the police services to um, be able to make their own decisions on what to do and, and to be able to act accordingly. That's what they're trained to do. That's what they do well. Um, I don't think anybody in any party disagrees with that, that our police services are some of the best in the world here in Canada. All right, Jamie Schmell, what more should the government be doing given the actions of those protesters we saw today and what uh, seems to have been, at least for part of the day, uh, an escalation in the tensions and, and the tactics? Well, I do agree that the actions are unacceptable and that safety is the number one priority for everyone involved. But this didn't have to happen this way. This is a result of an action by this Prime Minister for a number of weeks on this file, letting this smolder, and now it's spiraling out of control. And now you're seeing people taking actions that are putting others at risk, and that is unacceptable. So what would you do about it? Well, I think the police need to do their jobs. I think the courts have been clear on what needs to happen. I think we need to encourage that the Wet'suwet'en people continue the dialogue through their traditional conflict resolution methods. That needs to keep going. You also need to look at the anti-energy protesters who have no connection to First Nations community, who have glommed on to this, this, uh, this action and are causing blockades that are shutting down the Canadian economy. And the courts have been clear as to what should happen. All right, Rachel Blaney, what more should the government be doing? Well, Peter, I have to say that, you know, in January of this year, the hereditary chiefs let the Prime Minister know that they wanted the Prime Minister to come and have a conversation with them. And the Prime Minister kept saying, not our problem, not our problem. And then in the space of one week, he said, well, yeah, actually, there's a federal role for this. And, you know, middle of week, yeah, we, we're listening. And end of week, we're not listening anymore. We're just going to fully back and support uh, police intervention. So when I look at that process, it didn't leave anything open for dialogue. It certainly did not de-escalate the situation. There were many pathways that the Prime Minister repeatedly choose, chose not to take, and it was a total lack of leadership. So now here we are with a situation that's impacting us across the nation. It's increasingly unsafe, and it's important that the Prime Minister step up and do his job and help de-escalate this. So and that can be done by appointing a mediator and going to meet the hereditary right. he chiefs. Said, he said he wouldn't meet the chiefs. Uh, now's not the right time, he said in the House of Commons today. Because then when is the right they okay. seem to be picking sides as, as the Wet'suwet and try to, to resolve their own leadership structure issues. So he would be seen suggesting would seem to be taking sides in while they have that discussion and try to resolve that. Well, I don't think it's taking sides. When you are asked to go do something, as the Prime Minister of this country, your job is to de-escalate tensions. I believe that fundamentally. And when we look at what was happening in that area, in the Wet'suwet'en territory, the industry had slowed down on their building process. The RCMP were being respectful, trying to work out the situation, and they were backing off. So there was a lot of stuff happening in the beginning of the week that showed a lot of progress and that things were going to be de-escalated. Okay. And then the Prime Minister stood up on 
on Friday and rose all that up so that we had more escalation. So he has to take his seriously his role as a leader, and this has been a failure of leadership. Pam DeMoff, uh, your minister was holding it hope today that he'd get an invitation for a long-awaited face-to-face meeting with uh, the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs who oppose this project. They, they seem to be suggesting it could happen as early as Thursday now in some of the mm -hmm. reports we've seen. Uh, that's tomorrow. Uh, what can you tell us about when that meeting will happen? I don't know when that meeting will happen, but I think we're all hopeful that it'll happen very soon and that, you know, it is at the invitation of the hereditary chiefs and, and there's been some positive progress there um, in terms of, of conversations between the, the hereditary chiefs and the RCMP with Nathan Cullen acting as a, as a mediator with them. And, and you know, I, I take exception to people saying that the Prime Minister hasn't been providing leadership because he has. You know, he's leading a team that have people with expertise and, and you, you can't discount the, the value in having a leader that lets the people who know what they're doing do the work that they should oh, do. Okay, uh, uh, Mr. Schmell, let me ask you, what should, uh, if, if these meetings and when these meetings go ahead, presumably they will at some point, should the federal government put any preconditions on those talks, such as saying uh, thank you for uh, accepting our invitation, we're, we're, we're happy to meet with you, but we want you to call an end to the blockades and protests before cabinet ministers will meet with them. Should that happen? Well, I think the government will determine their own path forward, but I do agree that the blockades do have to come down. The Canadian economy needs to get back on track. We need to look after the safety of the people involved, and that all needs to happen. But again, I agree with my friend from the NDP, there has been a total lack of leadership by the Prime Minister on this file, and now we're at the point where we are now, where people are putting others at risk, and as well as the livelihoods of thousands of Canadians and millions of dollars within the Canadian economy. But it might happen organically, uh, Rachel Blaney, that, that if there's, this meeting goes ahead, perhaps it will be communicated that uh, the blockade should come down while those meetings take place. But uh, that might be, a, might be a hope, might be wishful thinking. Should mm -hmm. the federal government insist if we're going to have meetings, the blockades have to come down? Well, look, you know, CP Rail, industry, and Indigenous leaders across this country were telling the Prime Minister a week ago, you need to get out there, you need to do the work. That's what leadership is. When you have everybody pointed in the same direction, it makes sense to me that the Prime Minister would do the next step. He chose not to. So, you right, know, but is I, the government now in a position to say, we're happy to, we're, we thank, you, well, for, the, thank the, you for inviting us to the meeting. Get the blockades down before we talk. You know what? The government has to make its decision. It has made its decision. We are where we are today because of that decision where our economy is struggling. We have people that are completely unsafe. It's getting totally uh, concerning for everybody. So hopefully the Prime Minister will do the right thing, show up, and I believe that there will be a respectful process once the Prime Minister is respectful. Uh, Pam DeMoff, should the government set preconditions for this meeting once the meeting's agreed to, to say, look, we're going to come all the way out there to Vancouver to see you? please uh, call down the blockades when we start our talks. Well, I think that's the whole point of, of having a conversation with the chiefs is to move in that direction, Peter. There's no doubt about it. Um, and, you know, I, I just have to say, I listened to the rhetoric in the House of Commons last week from the Conservative Party, and it was really concerning about trying to, to get to direct law enforcement. We're, the dialogue is continuing, and it's important dialogue, and, I, and I'm not going to presuppose what, what Ministers Miller and Bennett are going to be saying before they go into that meeting. Oh, okay, let me, let me deal with one other issue here with this before I move on to your, your colleagues, and that yep. is this. Let's jump ahead, uh, if we can. 
let's the meetings in 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 everybody's world that wants this resolved. The meetings between federal ministers and uh, the uh, Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs who object to this project take place. What is the objective of any federal talks with the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs who oppose the gas pipeline through their territory? What's the end game for the government? I'm not quite following what you're. Okay, if the talks take place, what's the government? What does the government see as a resolution? Granting the hereditary chiefs what they want, which is not this pipeline, stop the pipeline project, or reroute it outside our territory. So, is the government prepared to do that? So on, on that part of it though, Peter, that is provincial. And that's I think what the Prime Minister was saying at the beginning of this, that this was a dialogue that was had with the provincial government, with a, with a corporation, in this case Co uh, Coastal Gas Link, and the uh, Wet'suwet'en people. It, it's it's not for we're trying to go in there to try and broker something to end up the, the the you know the impact on the economy what could be impact on people's lives if they're starting to jump in front of uh, moving trains um, there, there's so what there's, does the government feel it can give the wet sweat and chiefs in terms of, of the conversation, I you know, there's there's outstanding. This is the tip of the iceberg in terms of conversations between the hereditary chiefs and the elected band councils. There, uh, I know Minister Miller and Bennett are two of the 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 best that we have in the country in terms of their relationship with Indigenous peoples, and it would be wonderful if they could go out there and try and 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 come to some kind of conclusion with the with the chiefs and and help them move towards a, a dialogue with their. The, to get this this resolved. All right, Jamie Schmell, what are your thoughts on that? Because I'm I'm trying to get okay. Talks for for what purpose? If the federal government goes out there, what what concerns or questions do you have about what those conversations will be about when it comes to the future of this uh, this gas pipeline project? Well, again, uh, obviously we want this to uh, come to a peaceful solution. That's why we encourage traditional uh, methods within the Wet'suwet'en people to continue, and we encourage that. But at the end of the day, we also have to talk about the Wet'suwet'en people who voted in favor of this project, the 20 out of 20 duly elected councils and chiefs who voted for the Coastal Gas Link project, and the people who have a sense of opportunity when this project goes ahead, that they can lift themselves out of, out of poverty into prosperity and, and start moving their community uh, forward even quicker. Right, but we've heard the bottom line from the hereditary chiefs who oppose this project is they want it rerouted or they want it stopped. Uh, what should the government's answer to that? Well, there's also her hereditary chiefs that support the project as is. Right, I'm talking about the ones who oppose it. Then they're the ones the government's going to have initial talks with. So. Are you concerned well, at all? I mean, what do you want the federal government to say I, in those conversations? I guess, at the, I guess at the end of the day, you have to decide, does, does a, a number of people have a veto or not? I, th I think that's what you have to ask, ask yourself. And, you know, it, you're, you're, you're focusing on the, 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 the hereditary chiefs who oppose the project, but you're not, you know, just in general in this discussion, there are also hereditary chiefs that support it. Oh, yeah, and I know that. I, but I, think, what I'm, I guess what I'm, get, what I'm getting at is... Uh, is, if the conversations going if, if if the conversations are about satisfying the demands of the hereditary chiefs who oppose the project, their bottom line's been made clear. And is the federal government prepared to meet that bottom line and suggest the project get rerouted or cancelled? 
I, I guess that'll be a, a decision up to the federal government on this one. But at the end of the day, we want a peaceful resolution for this. We want the blockades lifted. We want the safety of all those involved upheld and uh, taken into account. And, and the fact that the prime minister, when this was starting to bubble out of control, um, was in Africa campaigning for a useless okay. UN Security Council seat. R Rachel Blaney, what do you think these talks? What do you think these talks can produce in that context I've talked about? About okay, what what would What's the purpose, what's the end game and the objective of these talks given what we've heard from the hereditary chiefs who oppose the project? Well, Peter, if you look at the history of this country, there's a long history that has to be overcome. And what we're seeing across this country is an appetite for many Canadians that the issue of reconciliation and Indigenous rights and title actually be addressed in a meaningful way. What the government chooses to do in those conversations, I'm not privy to, nor am I in a position where I can direct them. What I hope to see happen is the dialogue uh, happen to increase more peaceful discussions and hopefully we understand that with the process here is it really is this nation to nation part that is talked about a lot but inaction is something that is a lot of hard work and the nation of Canada needs to talk to the nation of the Wet'suwet'en. There are people on both sides. I think it's important that we honor and respect that, that the Wet'suwet'en people like every community across this planet has people who are for and against and that process has to unfold. It is not up to us to decide how that process unfolds, but it is up to the government to respect that process and to be part of it, especially when they're called on to do so. All right, thank you all for your time tonight. It can be a, a complicated issue and uh, the next couple of days might be really important. So uh, thank you all for your time tonight. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you. Well, as the rail blockades continue, the uncertainty grows for many Canadian industries and their supply chains that rely on the, roll, on the rails rather, for domestic distribution and for export. Grocery chains are starting to see shortages of perishable goods. Large retailers have goods stuck in port or stranded on ships offshore. And Canadian farmers uh, have begun uh, rationing propane and feed in case the rail shutdown does drag on. And soon, uh, that pain and concern, hey, that could be felt by Canadian consumers as well. And farmers say they want decisive action from the federal government to deal with this situation. What action and how bad is the situation for farmers? Let's find out. Mary Robinson is the president of the Canadian Federation of Agriculture. She's a Prince Edward Island potato farmer. And Keith Curry is the vice president of the CFA and a hay and sweet corn farmer from Collingwood, Ontario. They represent some 200,000 farm families in this country, and they're with me in the studio, as you can see. Good to see you both. Thanks for being here. Um, First of all, tell me how these blockades are affecting your members, these 200,000 farm families in Canada. What's actually happening on the ground out there? Well, the impact is far-reaching for us. We have producers in the West who rely on rail to get grains to port. And without being able to get grain to port, it means that we've got 50 vessels sitting in port in Vancouver waiting. And uh, the meter is running, uh, so that means there's additional costs that will be passed to farmers in that situation. Tens of thousands of dollars a day per vessel. So we know our, our grain growers have told us that um, they're seeing losses of $9 million a day just for primary producers. Mm. And we're also seeing, uh, as far as propane to heat barns, poultry cannot survive in a barn unless the barn is heated. <clears throat> and in Quebec, 85% of all chicken barns are heated by propane, and 80% of their propane is moved by rail. So we have, you know, a looming animal <clears throat> welfare situation. And in the East Coast, we also have feed that can't get to livestock. We have, uh, right now, we'd be normally putting different components in place for planting in spring, which would be seed potatoes from Western Canada, 
Canada that travel to Eastern Canada as well as fertilizer and all kinds of components that we would normally be putting in place now. Keith, tell me more about that. This, this, I'm not sure everybody connects those dots when we talk about, you know, the connection between ships sitting in port waiting uh, and what does that have to do with the cost to a farmer? Uh, walk me through some of that. Well, ultimately, when the, this all gets resolved, somebody's going to have to pay that bill. And it's not going to be the end user, it's not going to be the end buyer, the consumer. The, there might be a, a little bit of additional cost to the consumer, but ultimately that cost is going to be borne by the, the producer, the farmer. And that's true in a lot of products. Uh, not only are our grains not getting out to the West Coast, we have lots of products in Eastern Canada that aren't getting to processed markets or packaging markets. Uh, we have a, a bunch of uh, perishable products like Apple sitting on rail cars right now that can't get to a packer. Uh, are they going to spoil? Are they going to lose that market because they can't get to a packing plant? Uh, a lot of our pork is shipped by rail to either to the processor or from the processor. Uh, we're losing those markets. Mm. So the, there's an economic loss to the farmer, but also any extra costs are going to be borne by the farmer as well. That's really important, I think, to drill down a bit uh, further, Mary. The, this notion that I think for a lot of Canadians, if there's some kind of a, a, a dispute or a stoppage or a rail strike, uh, when stuff does start getting move again, people think, well, it'll, it, it doesn't matter. They'll recoup their losses and just pass on that that cost to consumers. So consumers will pay more, and that could well be the case eventually uh, when we move through uh, this conflict. But that doesn't mean the farmer gets a piece of that, right? No, this has a definite impact on our net bottom line. We don't have the ability to pass any of these costs on to anyone else. We're, we're the foundation for Canadian agriculture and when we sell on market, we sell at market prices. So much like how uh, you would buy an ounce of gold, uh, that price is set and you don't have any opportunity if you're selling that gold to command a different price than your neighbor does. So when you're selling grain on a market, that price is set by the market and, and that's the price you get. When you want decisive action from the federal government, what are we talking about? What do you want to see? Well, uh, on this issue, we need some leadership and we need it to be resolved. We need to get back to business. It would be great if this conversation was, uh, the situation was de-escalated and there'd be meaningful dialogue and resolution, you know, where we certainly would like to see a, a long-term resolution to this situation so we don't continue to see it crop up. Uh, and moving forward, what we need to see from federal government is uh, more confidence and more investment in Canadian agriculture to help us really achieve the potential that we know we have. Um, so, as we speak, what we're seeing is a, is a federal government, Keith, that's saying, and the Prime Minister is saying, look, we're, they're essentially relying on negotiation and they're uh, calling for blockades to come down, injunctions to be enforced. What, what more should they be doing? If, if you're, when you talk decisive action, uh, what could that be? Well, I think they have to actually force the conversation to, to happen, first of all. Uh, asking for resolve in this without actually taking the steps to make those conversations happen uh, isn't going to solve the situation. Um, but they say they're, they're, you know, they're, they're the overture's there for the Wet'suwet'en and hereditary chiefs. They're waiting for meetings, waiting for face-to-face -face conversations. You want them to do what? Push? I, I want them to jump in the car and go see them. Uh, I, I, want, I want that action to happen now so at least we have the conversation so they know what, it, what the parameters are around resolving this situation. Uh, we've talked uh, briefly about the short-term ramifications, but there are long-term ramifications on, on uh, our markets overseas and around the world that we export to because in agriculture we're an export country. And if we you think the world's looking at this and saying Canada is no longer a reliable We want supplier. constant stable markets uh, that we can rely on shipping products to us. And if Canada can't rely, can't 
effectively get us that uh, with confidence, then we'll look elsewhere to find it. And that's the danger we have long term in this. So that's why there's an urgency to find resolve in, in this situation. How urgent is it? I mean, we talked, touched on the notion of shortages of propane and, and feed and so on. How critical? How, how many days are we talking here before it really starts to get felt? On the, on the in the farm families yeah. and it, it is now to some it extent. is definitely impacting farm families right now and I guess if if someone was told that in seven to ten days they might not be able to heat their home then at what point does it become a crisis for them it's something they're certainly going to put as a high priority right now and we do know in Quebec that we were told uh, they do have seven to ten days of propane reserves now to uh, to continue to heat barns so we are certainly at a turning point right now a tipping point and and when we look at the days we're losing on rail and we know that there's going to be a backlog of other business that needs to move on rail, we're getting into a point where uh, spring planting is going to be threatened here because how long will it take for us to catch up and get product where it needs to go? Um, what about the notion of, uh, jumping ahead a bit here, uh, the notion of compensation? I mean, we talked a little bit about losses. Have uh, you had any conversations with federal officials, Minister of Agriculture, for instance, about okay what can you do for farmers when this gets settled certainly we we're going to be thinking about that uh, in the future right now our focus is predominantly on getting back to business we've got to get the rails moving again and then we can deal with the issue of compensation after the fact uh, some people hear this and say um, okay so you can't move this by rail uh, what about moving it by transport truck? Mm. before we started this uh, blockade situation our trucking sector was overwhelmed and under it, it did not have the resources to meet demand in eastern canada we're constantly struggling to find trucks to move product because we don't have as robust a rail service mm -hmm. in eastern canada as central and western canada uh, what are you seeing? Same same challenges in Ontario? Yeah, in, in particular with propane, uh, the bulk of it is moved from Sarnia into eastern eastern Canada to the suppliers, and then from there it's it's by truck. So we just don't physically have the truck infrastructure, even if we had lots of available drivers to find those trucks to move the propane to adequately supply everybody. And you know, we're we're talking now not just about the farm impact; we're talking about rural Canada impact. Uh, nursing homes, hospitals, rural homes that are heated by propane. We're talking about metal skill supplies in right. northern areas, those kinds of things. So it's impactful. Um, let me finish on this. Uh, there's been a lot of conversation in this country in the last number of years about the challenges for farmers in this country and, and, and issues around mental health. And so it's it's been a tough year. I mean, you've had a rail strike in the fall. Uh, you've had uh, the, the battles with the Chinese over uh, some of our exports, uh, and now you've got this. And weather. Uh, and, and weather. Um, talk to me a bit about that, about supports for farm families and, and how this is layered on top of those challenges and, and this concern around mental illness. So the Canadian Federation of Agriculture is actively working on this file in particular, uh, and we do have um, different services available in different provinces. For example, in my home province, Prince Edward Island, we have a, a, an exceptional program called the Farmers Assistance Program, which is funded in part by our provincial government. The mental health situation is absolutely dire, and what we'd like to do is uh, beef those um, offerings up for producers across the country. We're always encouraging our members to check in on their neighbors. You know, something as simple as that can go a long way. Make sure that people are doing all right, and if you haven't seen someone around, touch base with them. But I know um, the uh, the impact of suicide is certainly something we're all too familiar with. 
All right, and uh, another level of stress for farmers in this country right now until this gets settled. Mm -hmm. uh, Mary Robinson, Keith Curry, uh, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Thank, Thank you, Peter. Well, the challenges facing Canada's farm families was raised in question period today with the opposition pressing the Prime Minister to take action to ease the financial burden caused by the rail blockades and other setbacks. Mr. Speaker, last fall, farmers in my riding and across this country endured the harvest from hell. And then they had the carbon tax, the CN rail strike and trade issues. Those producers who were able to get their crop off are now facing illegal blockades, preventing them from even selling those commodities, putting them in a serious cash crunch this spring. And now their advance payments are due and they have no way of paying them back. They don't need platitudes, they need answers. Will the Prime Minister commit today to extend the deadline on those loan prepayments and waive the interest under the advance payment program? We know that Canada's agricultural and agri-food industry is a key driver of jobs, economic prosperity and growth for the middle class. We know that severe weather from drought to flooding and other risks beyond farmers' control can have serious impacts on their businesses. Our government stands shoulder to shoulder with Canadian producers. We are monitoring the situation. We are working to ensure that they have the support they need. Canada has a new case of the COVID-19 coronavirus, a woman in her 60s in Ontario who has recently traveled to Iran. There are now 12 cases in Canada, but public health officials insist the risk of the virus spreading in this country is still low. Meanwhile, the virus is spreading around the world, but so far the World Health Organization hasn't declared the outbreak a pandemic. Coming up, more on Canada's preparations for the possible spread of the virus in this country and what impact that could have. But first, some background. Coronavirus, also known by its official name COVID-19, has infected over 80,000 people. Most of those cases are contained within China, where over 78,000 people have caught the illness. Nearly 2,800 people have died, with only 55 of those deaths outside of China. COVID-19 has now spread across the world through North America, South America, Europe, Asia, Africa, and Australia. Canada currently has 12 confirmed cases of the virus, including a new one today, and the United States has 57. Outbreaks have begun in South Korea with over 1,200 reported cases, Japan with over 800 cases, Italy with over 300 cases, and Iran with over 100 cases. Canada has issued travel advisories for these countries, urging Canadians to avoid non-essential travel to China, to practice special precautions when traveling to Iran, Northern Italy, and South Korea, and to practice usual precautions, such as regular hand washing, when traveling to Hong Kong, Japan, and Singapore. COVID-19 originated in Wuhan, China, and was found in people who had had contact with the seafood and live animal market. There have been a range of symptoms associated with coronavirus so far, including fever, cough and shortness of breath, and pneumonia, kidney failure, and death. The World Health Organization has not yet declared COVID-19 a pandemic. The organization defines a pandemic as something that may occur when a new influenza virus appears, against which the human population has no immunity. The House of Commons Standing Committee on Health heard an update today on the efforts of the public health officials in this country to deal with the COVID-19 outbreak and the 
potential for it to get worse in this country. Uh, we're still in a good position to maintain our containment approach, uh, but we do recognize and we're also cognizant of what's happening at the global level. So the Dr. Tedros at the World Health Organization did indicate that the window of opportunity is closing. So at the same time that Canada is still maintaining its containment posture, if I could put it that way, we're also starting to prepare for a possible pandemic. So we can't, we can't do this with our eyes closed and not recognize what might happen weeks and months from now, which has nothing to do maybe specifically with Canada, but what's happening internationally. As I said in my opening remarks, we have uh, two uh, sort of foundational documents. There is a, what we call a federal, provincial, territorial uh, plan for biological events in terms of a response plan. Uh, lots of things are already underway, including a special advisory committee of the chief medical officers of health for each of the provinces and territories. We, we meet with them uh, regularly multiple times during the week to actually look at issues, guidance, policies, programs we need to put in place to address uh, COVID-19. And as well, there's something called the Canadian Pandemic Influenza Plan. This was based on uh, previous experiences, including H1N1. And that's what we're now looking at in terms of forward planning. Uh, just to take an example of the kind of things we're looking at, and I think it's the same for other countries around the world, it's looking at things that should there be widespread transmission in Canada and in other, many other parts of the world, we would be looking at measures such as what we call social distancing. Uh, do we need to start looking at uh, cancelling uh, sort of uh, mass gatherings of public events? Uh, would there be things such as uh, uh, looking at uh, what we need to do with schools and students attending schools and people sick in the hospitals and so on? So that's all in the future. We're certainly not there yet, but we are actually taking a close look and making sure we're prepared for that. And we also heard from Canada's Minister of Health today, uh, Patty Haidu, suggesting Canadians should make preparations in case of an outbreak of the virus in this country. I think the preparation for an outbreak of coronavirus is, as I said, very similar to other kinds of crises that people see in communities all the time. It's, there's no magic to this. It's really about, first of all, um, making sure that you do have enough supplies. If someone in your family becomes ill, if you yourself become ill, that you have what you need to survive, uh, you know, for a week or so without having, without going out uh, outside uh, to be prepared in terms of your own personal health. Maybe people are having, you know, have certain medications that need prescriptions on a regular basis to have enough on hand. I think the other thing that Canadians can do is to protect their own health, to wash their hands, to make sure that if they are ill that they're staying home, that they're getting their flu shots so that they're not ill in the middle of flu season and further burdening our health care systems which are, as you know, in full swing right now with a, with a pretty severe uh, uh, influenza outbreak. So these are the kinds of things that we can all be doing as Canadians to make sure that we're ready should we see an outbreak in any of our communities. Well, let's get an expert assessment of the spread of the COVID-19 virus and the implications for Canada. Dr. Susie Hoda is the Medical Director uh, of Infection Prevention and Control at the University Health Network in Toronto. She joins me now. Dr. Hoda, thanks for taking your time. It's good to see you. Thanks for having me. When we hear about the spread of the COVID-19 uh, cases around the world now and the challenges in, in trying to contain the spread, how concerned should we be here in Canada? Well, I mean, certainly it seems as though things have escalated, especially over the last week or so. Um, you know, right now in Canada, we still have very few cases, but of course we're anticipating that that may change. And so it's best for us to be thinking about how we can prepare ahead and, and be able to respond to that. I want to get into that in some detail, but let, let's stay for a moment with the global picture. How, how do you assess the global efforts to try and contain this? 
Well, I think, uh, you know, China really did try very hard to contain things. And, um, you know, unfortunately, we continue to see spread outside of China. Um, but, you know, it is a difficult thing to, to manage. One of the reasons being that people can have relatively mild symptoms when they're infected with this and not recognize that they, they have uh, infection and maybe not seek medical attention. And so it get, becomes really difficult to track what's going on. Um, and so, you know, I, I do think that quite a few efforts have been made and uh, most of them were very valuable in terms of trying to slow things down, but ultimately, viruses like this can spread and uh, we should be prepared for that possibility that it will continue. Let's talk about that. I mean, is there a clear picture to you yet on, on what this, this outbreak might do next? Where, where could it go from here? And let's, let's start globally and then we'll talk about Canada. Globally, what do you think we watch for now? Yeah, I mean, I think we're already seeing cases that are popping up that were exported from Italy, for example, through Europe. Um, there's been a case now in Brazil. Uh, you know, I, that's what we're going to be seeing probably in the next several days, um, up to a couple of weeks, is seeing more cases arising in areas that have not yet declared cases. The real question will be how many of those will take off and result in sustained transmission within those countries locally. And if we see that really pick up, then that's a sign that, you know, we are indeed in a pandemic. And. I suppose does some of that depend on which countries we're talking about? Uh, we're seeing some spikes in, in, in a number of different countries, Iran, for instance, uh, perhaps yeah. without the kind of, the, you know, the same tools to diagnose it or contain it that other countries have. Um, how concerned should we be about that? Yes, I mean, there are several countries that don't have as much access to diagnostics, but that's only really part of the picture. Uh, the other concern is how well can they respond to a problem like this? Do they have the public health infrastructure to actually follow up on cases in the community and try to follow up on their contacts and contain it when it's in the early stages and you have that opportunity to contain it? Um, and how are their hospitals prepared? What is the capacity of their hospitals and what are their infection control policies to try and reduce transmission within healthcare settings? These are the questions that will determine how well a country is going to be able to handle this when it's introduced. Let's talk about Canada. Um, what's the likelihood of an outbreak of the disease in this country beyond what we've seen so far, the relatively isolated cases we've seen that uh, our travelers returning to this country uh, where they've typically picked up the virus outside of the country? How concerned should we be that we could see an outbreak here? You know, I think it's definitely a possibility and something that we're just planning ahead for the possi this possibility. We do have a strong system in place in terms of public health knowing, um, you know, what to do to, to trace people who have been diagnosed with this and their contacts. We've got strong infection control programs in hospitals. Um, the challenge is, like I said, people not being aware that they may have been exposed as things are rapidly changing. Um, and not coming forward with symptoms um, or coming forward with symptoms and not really recognizing that this could be the case or, or declaring their travel history and exposures. So, you know, that's always something that we have to be aware of that can happen. Um, so over time, as it becomes more widespread throughout the world, we will have to adapt our strategies to try and uh, identify people who might have this illness. But, but should we expect that, it, that it's... That it's uh it's almost a given that at some point we'll have a, 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 a sort of person-to-person -person, uh, spread of this uh, virus in Canada at some point, or can any way to protect against that? 
I think it's looking less and less likely that we'll be able to stop that from happening as it increases um, in different parts of the world. It's hard to anticipate things. You know, the outbreaks in other parts of the world sometimes are arising or being declared at a point where there's already been lots of community-related transmission and people may have traveled from those areas already to Canada. So it is, it's, I think, likely that we will see cases increase in Canada over time unless something drastic happens um, throughout the world. And should Canadians, what, what level of confidence should Canadians have that we have a robust plan in this country to deal with if, if we do get an outbreak? Um, how confident should we be that, uh, that public health officials and people such as yourself have, have this plan ready to go that will protect uh, the country? I mean, we've been working on pandemic planning since the, the time of SARS, really, and recognizing how important it is to be prepared for another emerging infectious disease that can be transmitted in the same sort of way. But also influenza pandemics we know of, have been, um, you know, happening um, throughout history and could happen again at any point in time. So hospitals have pandemic plans. Public health officials have developed pandemic plans at different levels, the national level. And those are evergreen documents. You know, they're things that are being updated constantly. And so we have that basis that can be adapted for this scenario fairly quickly, I think, as we learn more and more about how COVID-19 is, is behaving. One of the challenges is that we still don't have all those answers about how it is clinically and epidemiologically behaving. So, you know, it's like I said, a process, but we do have the foundation in place already. The World Health Organization, and we'll wrap up on this, is, is still refusing to, to call this a pandemic. Uh, do you support that approach? Yeah, it's a bit of a judgment call. Um, I think we all recognize that things have escalated. And frankly, the declaration of a pandemic gets everyone on the same page. And so it's helpful in that respect. But there's nothing stopping it, different countries from actually going ahead and planning for the kinds of measures that you might need to pull out if this becomes more widespread in your community. In fact, I think this is a good opportunity for us to be doing that, dusting off our pandemic plans, thinking about what we need to plan for um, moving forward. So whether you declare it a pandemic or not, I don't think it changes the way that people ought to respond at this point. Right, but, but what, what would change, I guess, in, in the response, not, not just in this country, or, or, but globally, if, if the WHO does declare a pandemic, what would be different? Well, I mean, like I said, I think it makes that statement that we should be going from less of a contain every case kind of um, modality of response to let's mitigate, recognizing that there will be transmission within the community. Let's reduce that risk to people. Let's take out measures like social distancing, which we haven't put into place here yet because there is not a reason to do so. But if we suspect that there is going to be more community spread here, than trying to get people to avoid being in large congregations, for example, having to close down areas or schools, for example, or, or places where people tend to be uh, crowded and infections can actually spread more rapidly. Those kinds of measures, we're not at a point where we need to institute that, but you can look ahead and start planning for that. And, and when you declare something a pandemic, that's the kind of thing that in a, the public health arena you think about. And, and would this be a time to, we heard the health minister say today that, look, it's not a bad idea for Canadians to prepare for that possibility. I suppose stock up on medication that you might need if you find yourself, uh, you know, limited to your house for a couple of weeks. Is that same kind of advice you would give that, look, it could be coming, so get ready? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that for the public, the most important thing is really recognizing some things that sound kind of mundane, but are really important for protecting your own health. You know, washing your hands really frequently, um, you know, try not to touch your face. And if you become sick with a respiratory illness, stay at home and take care of yourself and don't expose others to you, to your illness. I mean, those are basic things that I think are important for people to think about. Whether you need to stockpile food or medications or, you know, other supplies at home, I, I don't think that we're at a point where people need to panic and do things like that at this point in time. But you should be thinking ahead about what your needs are, and, and I think that's fine. Really, the focus is on, on places like where I work in hospitals for us to be preparing because it takes time to get preparations in place to deal with increased volumes of patients, for example, and make sure our supplies are here to care for the ill um, and that all of our protocols uh, are functioning well and people are feeling well supported to actually do their jobs. That, I think, is really what the focus is at this point in time. And for us to mobilize the resources to actually support that kind of work is really important. Dr. Susie Hoda, uh, thank you for your perspective tonight. Great to talk to you. You're welcome. And we'll return now to our top story tonight, the ongoing blockades and protests, which have really grown beyond anti-pipeline protests to demonstrations now of total dissatisfaction with the fundamental relationship between many Indigenous communities and governments in this country. Today in Victoria, B.C., young Indigenous protesters who've been camped out at the B.C. legislature insisted reconciliation is dead and that they will continue the protests and the protests across the country will go on until the gas pipeline in Wet'suwet'en territory is stopped. Here's one of the speakers today, for the record. Here are demands for Canada, for BC, and for Canadian officials. We are Indigenous youth from nations across Canada standing independently in solidarity with all five clans of the Wet'suwet'en Nation who have unanimously rejected the Coastal GasLink project. In standing with our Wet'suwet'en relatives, we will occupy ministry offices, rail lines, and legislative and parliamentary precincts in order to hold all levels of the Canadian government responsible for their perpetuation of Canada's genocidal legacy. We are committed to holding Canadian officials accountable. This means continually returning to their spaces of governance and law until Canada abides by Wet'suwet'en traditional governance and law. It is our inherent responsibility as Indigenous youth to resist injustice and, with, and defend Wet'suwet'en sovereignty. We recognize that the Wet'suwet'en upholding their responsibilities to lands, waters and climate justice protects our collective futures. Indigenous youth stand in solidarity with all Indigenous peoples defending their lands across Canada from Wet'suwet'en to Tyendinaga. We resist the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and Ontario Provincial Police violently criminalizing Indigenous peoples for demanding the bare minimum of Canada. Through these shameful arrests, the world has witnessed the colonial facade of reconciliation come crashing down to expose the Canadian reality of Indigenous genocide that has never been interrupted or reconciled. Indigenous youth across the country declare that reconciliation is dead. We condemn the coercive tactics employed by CGL, the lack of meaningful dialogue from the Canadian state, and the overall attempted erasure of Indigenous rights, title, and law. The situation on Wet'suwet'en territory has revealed the true nature of Canada's predatory consultation practices. It has been made clear the Indigenous nations do not have the right to free prior and informed consent. The ongoing raid against the Wet'suwet'en shows that saying no results in a paramilitary invasion. 
Good faith negotiations do not look like seizing indigenous lands at gunpoint, while simultaneously denying critical programs and services to our communities. Not only is the RCMP raid of Wet'suwet'en territories a coercive force on behalf of Coastal GasLink, but so is the systemic treatment of indigenous peoples in Canada. Our communities should not be subject to predatory consultation practices that exploit cycles of poverty that Canada intentionally maintains, meanwhile generating immense wealth from our territories since co colonization. Boil water advisories, near extermination of traditional foods like wild salmon, caribou, and buffalo, as well as underfunded social health and education programs accessed by regular Canadians are all coercive conditions for negotiations with industry. This is the inescapable economic component of ongoing colonization. There is undue pressure for Indigenous nations to engage in impact benefit agreements slash mutual benefit agreements with environmentally destructive projects. The economic oppression of colonization is leveraged by corporate interests and supported by the government. The impact benefit agreements negotiations are a corrupt process that is not equivalent to true consent. Our human rights as Indigenous peoples are inherent and cannot be contingent upon the transaction and annihilation of our lands. As Indigenous youth, we will do everything in our power to protect our future and Wet'suwet'en lands from destruction. It's time for Canadian officials to do the same. If you do not stand with us, you are complicit in ongoing injustice. Our generation and all future generations of our nations will remember those who took a stand against genocide. We will also not forget those who, will, who were complacent in ongoing colonial acts of violence. We demand that the leadership of British Columbia and Canada enter into nation-to-nation -nation discussions with the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs in order for these discussions to take place in good faith and without duress. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police must be withdrawn from Wet'suwet'en territories. All ongoing RCMP patrols and surveillance must also cease. The removal of the Community Industry Safety Office will not satisfy this requirement unless all our RCMP activities are discontinued. Coastal GasLink must cease activity and withdraw personnel from Wet'suwet'en territories in accordance with the eviction that was issued by Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs on January 4, 2020. Canada must critically examine how the systemic treatment of Indigenous peoples in Canada is a coercive factor in negotiations with industry. There can be no free prior and informed consent while many Indigenous nations in Canada still have boil water advisories. British Columbia must revoke all permits granted to CGL, especially in light of the BC Environmental Assessment Office's rejection of CGL's technical data report. British Columbia must also cease its defamation and criminalization of Indigenous leaders and governments. The inflammatory rhetoric of BC Premier only serves to incite hate and violence against Indigenous peoples, standing up for our inherent rights and livelihoods. Canada must cease the criminalization of all peaceful Indigenous solidarity actions and blockades that exist because of Canada's failure to adhere to diplomacy and meet with Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs call off OPP from Tyendinaga Mohawk Territory. It is time for you to act upon your responsibilities. From the Indigenous youth standing in solidarity with Wet'suwet'en. A young Indigenous protester in Victoria, British Columbia, earlier today for the record.
That's all for another edition of Primetime Politics on CPAC. We are the Cable Public Affairs Channel. I'm Peter Van Dusen. Thanks for watching.